Shalom Aleichem, everybody. Welcome to our podcast. This is the blood of the Torah. I mentioned this in a Shabbat drosh. Uh, talked about the fact that there was an insight that suggested that the blood, which was, of course, the blood of the Pesach lamb, the Passover lamb, that was placed upon the doorposts and the lintels of the homes in Egypt, that there was an insight that suggested that that blood, at least metaphorically, uh, was the blood of the Torah, which is very interesting because that would mean that the blood of the Lamb is synonymous with the blood of the Torah or that there could be a esoteric, a sowed level, a Kabbalistic level idea that the Torah itself is blood and it is that blood, the blood of the Torah, that Hashem sees that releases us from the confines of Mitzrayim, of Egypt. It's very, very interesting, obviously very important to understand the atoning work of the Mashiach, who the Mashiach is referred to in the, in the Gospels as the, the Lamb of God, uh, which is an insinuation at the very least that he's the Pesach Lamb, and this has a lot of very intriguing and very interesting meaning as we begin to look at the sacrifices, which is my intention now moving forward. It is, it is the first day of Shabbat 5784, and this upcoming Shabbat, I intend to begin discussing the sacrifices and trying to make sense of the sacrifices, because many people believe that the atoning work of Yeshua uh, abolished the sacrifices, made them of no effect, or perhaps better said, not no longer necessary. Uh, but that is, in fact, not at all true. Very easily discovered that that is a, fall- a fallacy of thinking. But it all really goes back to this concept of the Pesach lamb, the blood of the, of the lamb. And now in this in this insight I'm about to read, we're looking at the blood of the lamb uh, as it relates to being placed upon the doorpost and how that bl- how this insight brings down that that blood is basically the blood of the Torah. So that's our topic for our podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I wanted to say that we're going to be reading from the Midrash Rabbah, uh, Shemot, um, and it's Midrash Rabbah Shemot, chapter 1, Saman 36. We're going to begin reading in Saman 36 because this is a wonderful insight that brings us eventually to this insight about the blood and the Torah, um, beginning with a concept of, of quote-unquote, saved by grace. So, in Christianity, which was uh, initiated by the heretical and false teachings of the false apostle Paul, Paul made this argument that We're no longer saved by the works of the law, but now we're saved by grace. There is something new was introduced with the so-called cross of J.C. And he made it sound like, and, and, and still today, obviously, a lot of people who are Christians believe that back in the olden days, the Jews had to keep those old uh, laws of Moses, which were so hard and so difficult. And the reason we had to do that is because we had to do that in order to be saved by, uh, by works. Uh, of course, you had to do it absolutely perfectly. 
And if you messed it up at all, then you were a condemned sinner. There was no way to get saved um, uh, beyond that. And therefore, we had to wait thousands of years until finally God would introduce grace into the subject matter, thereby we could be saved by grace, cast off the burden of the law, no longer have to be held to such a micro under a microscope of having to do works and blah 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 blah. We would be saved by grace, no longer by works. None of that is true. That is all fantasy and fairy tales, unicorns and and snow cones, and cotton candy, Sasquatch and um, Godzilla, um, Loch Ness monster, uh, make believe. None of it is true. Um, it is, it, and beyond that, it's utterly ridiculous. But it's interesting as we go to the Midrash Rabbah, we find that the idea of being saved by grace, or to put it another way, being saved, if you will, being redeemed, um, not according to our own merit, is actually a fundamental principle of belief in Judaism. Isn't that amazing? And it is absolutely true. Uh, a, an easy way to understand this, if anybody's ever read uh, the Siddur, the prayer book of Jews, um, this pretty much comes up on, oh, I don't know, page one. Uh, and then, of course, if anybody has advanced, you know, in, in any advanced exercise, ever looked at the Makzor for Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, it's pretty easy to figure out that no Jew is trusting in their own quote unquote works in order to be saved, but rather we're putting our hope and trust in Hashem. So we find this, um, actually as a part of our discussion today in Midrash Rabbah Shemot. Uh, as I said, chapter 1 in Saman 36. It's quoting here from Exodus chapter 2 and verse 25. That's what Shemot means, by the way, means Exodus, for those of you who might be new. It's quoting here from Exodus 2 and 20, uh, verse 25. It says, God saw the children of Israel and God knew. So in a, a previous Midrash to this, it was expounding on this phrase of God saw. And what it is saying that it meant was that God discerned that the Israelites did not possess sufficient good deeds to be to merit redemption from Egypt. And so our present Midrash is going to expound on that concept of the fact that we don't have enough good works, we don't have enough good deeds to even merit being set free from Egypt. So now what is God going to do? It says, Hakados Bauku knew that even through is even though Israel lacked merits, it was nonetheless incumbent upon him to redeem Israel for his name's sake. So this I'm what I'm reading to you, by the way, for those of you who are brand new, you're 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 trying to figure things out. You've been in church for X number of years and Everything makes sense until you get to Paul's letters and all of a sudden the wheels fly off and you're totally confused. You know there's something more. I'm reading to you from the Midrash Rabbah. This is the ancient writing of the rabbis. It was it was written down in the first through basically the fourth centuries, but that doesn't mean that's when it was developed. <laughs> you know, um, these what's being written what's written down here is the thoughts of the rabbis going back thousands of years prior to that to put it in perspective it'd be how many of you know what an autobiography is 
An autobiography is when somebody writes a book that's about their life, um, written by the author. So let me ask you a question. If I sat down to write a book about my life, did my life begin when I started writing it down? Well, no, of course. You're writing down what happened, in my case, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, right? Right, of course. So when the rabbi sat down to write the Midrash Rabbah or, or the Talmud, does that mean that they came up with those concepts at that time? No, they're writing down concepts that have existed for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. And that's the point I want to make. What I'm talking about here is that these th- these thoughts, these concepts that I'm reading to you right now are thousands of years old, not 2,000 years old, 3,000, 4,000 years old plus. So it says here, HaKadosh Baruch knew that he, he it was incumbent upon him to, to redeem us from Egypt just for the sake of his name Be, and because of the covenant that he had established with the patriarchs. And thus, with regard to the covenant, Scripture states, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And thus, with regard to the sanctification of his name, God states through the prophet Ezekiel, but I acted for the sake of my name, that is, not to be de- that it not be desecrated in the eyes of the nations to take them out of the land of, of Egypt. Ezekiel 20 and uh, verse uh, 9. So it goes on to say, and another interpretation, God saw the children of Israel and God knew. Resh Laki said, God saw that the Israelites were destined to rebel by the Sea of the Reeds, as it says, and they rebelled by the sea at the Sea of Reeds. Nevertheless, God chose to redeem them because, as it says, God knew. That is, God knew that the Israelites were destined to proclaim, this is my God, and I will glorify him. So it's really interesting, the footnotes here. It says, God looks at um, as our sins as if they represent a temporary departure from what is, in fact, our true nature. So what it's really fascinating here because it's saying in the ancient Jewish thought, the ancient Jewish understanding of this, these, what I'm reading to you predates Messiah. And it's saying here that, look, what God knew is that he needed to save the Israelites because of his namesake. And yes, he saw that they were going to make mistakes. He saw that they were going to fail in their uh, you know, observance and so forth. But you know what? He viewed that as if it was a temporary departure because their true nature was that they would, they would accept the Torah. In fact, they would say, this is my God and I will glorify him. It goes on to say, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi, Levi said, in stating God saw, Scripture means that God saw that the Israelites were destined to say of the golden calf, this is your God, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Nevertheless, God chose to redeem them because, as it says, and God knew, God knew what the Israelites were destined to give uh, precedence to when they said, we will do as a, as a, as opposed to we will listen. This is stated, of course, in Exodus 24 and verse 7. So in other words, our attitude towards the Torah was that we're going to do it even before we know what's in it. In other words, we are committed to the word of God despite whatever he might say. To put it another way, 
we we are accepting this side unseen. Hashem, we want your Torah, and we we're not going to say, well, I want your Torah, but uh, what what exactly do I have to do? Tell me tell me what it entails. No, the, the the faith of the Jewish people was such that we just want your word. And think about it. A lot of people today, when they start inquiring about the, the well, you, if you say to them, hey, look. If you become a believer, the fact of the matter is you would have to follow the laws of Moses. The first response is, well, what are the laws of Moses? That wasn't the response of the Jews. The response of the Jews is, okay. Okay, we'll do it. What is it? A lot of Most people say, well, what is it before I decide if I want to do it or not? And that's a fundamental difference between the Jewish soul and, and the Greek soul. The Jewish soul and the Gentile soul. The Jewish neshama says, I want it. What is it? The, the, the Gentile soul says, well, tell me what it is and I'll tell you if I want it. That's a completely different thing. Now, what's interesting here is that there's an article related to this in the Midrash Rabbah, and it's talking about that there, it says, our Midrash implies that the future rebellion of the Sea of, of Reeds, according to Reish Lakish, or the future sin of the Golden Calf, according to Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi, would have been reason to prevent Israel's redemption from Egypt had those sins not been offset by the future good deeds of the, of the proclamation, this is my God and I will glorify him, or we will do and we will, hear, we will listen. But it goes on to say here in this article, the commentators raise the following objection. If, is it not an established principle that God judges people only according to their present actions? Doesn't the Midrash not state below in, in chapter 3 in Simon 2 that the angels wanted to allow Ishmael to die of thirst because of the horrors that his descendants would afflict upon the Jews, but God insisted on judging him only in his present condition, his present state. In other words, he wasn't going to hold his future sins or the sins of his of his progeny against him. And so, and does the Midrash there also not state simply that while God saw that the Israelites in Egypt were destined to sin with a golden calf, he nevertheless declared, I will not judge them based on the actions they will do but rather based on the present situation. It's a really great article, but basically let me give you the short version of this because it really shows the heart of God as understood by Jewish people. And that go, one, one thing it says here is, is that to, to bring the resolution to this difficulty, it says it's only the person's future sins that are not reckoned to him now, but that is not true with respect to his merits. They are credited to him in advance. So what it's saying here is that to resolve this difficulty, it's saying, listen, God doesn't hold our future sins against us. He only judges us in our present situation. Because you might say, well, how could you, how can I be called God if you knew that I was going to be somebody who wasn't perfect, let's say. Well, God says, I didn't I didn't judge you on on your your you know, future imperfections. I judged you on who you are at this moment. All right. But here's the other flips, the flip side of that. The flip side of that is God says, however, not only do I judge you on who you are at this very moment, but I look forward to the future and I see, okay, you're going to make some mistakes, but you know what? You're also going to make some wonderful merits and I'm going to judge you now on those future merits that I see in the future. I'm not going to judge you now on the future sins. I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to ignore those. However, I'm going to take I'm going to take notice of your future merits. So it says here, God is selective in taking the future into account. He rewards for future merits even if 
there are also future sins. And it says in another highlighted statement, this is another aspect of God's great kindness. He sees into the future and reckons even now the good we will do while he simultaneously ignores the misdeeds that we have not yet done. It's amazing. This is an amazing insight into the love and grace of God for his people. And it's an absolute refutation of Paul's false gospel. Because in Paul's false gospel, the actual reverse is, is, is understood. That is that God looks and says, you're not going to be perfect. You can't do this perfectly. And I'm going to take that into account. And I'm going to tell you right now, you can't get saved by works. You need grace. Well, well, we already just, we just learned that it's grace anyway. So that whole grace versus work is a, is a false argument. It's a straw man argument. It's totally bogus. But what is even more important is that what we read is Hashem looks at our future. He doesn't see the mistakes. He sees only the good. He sees the, he, 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 he chooses to ignore the bad in place of accepting the good. This is why in our lives, we, and it's not easy as humans because we're not deities, we're humans, but this is why the Musar is that we have to look for the good in people and we have to see beyond their faults and failures and we have to look at their deeds and and even ex- and we have to assume that they're going to have good deeds in the future. That doesn't mean we, we can't be wise. It doesn't mean that we have to be naive it doesn't mean that if somebody has been a snake in the past, that we have to, you know, crawl up next to them. If they've bit us in the past, doesn't mean that we have to take their word for it. And we there there is a wait and see with people. But it does mean that we have to emulate God. And God's emulation is that he sees the good in us. Now, the Midrash goes on. The rabbis say that God saw that the intermediate Israelites only repented and God knew that the wicked also thought, had thoughts of repentance in their hearts. For it is written, the fig tree has formed its fruit, excuse me, and its first unripened figs. The vines in blossom give forth their scent. Song of Songs, chapter 2 and verse 13. Thus, with regard to the repentance of the wicked, it states, and God knew because no one among the wicked ever knew about the repentance of his friend. Only HaKadosh Baruch Hu was aware of it. Rather, this wicked individual directed his heart to repent, and another wicked individual directed his part to repent, and they therefore both repented. And yet, although all the Israelites repented to some degree, they would not have emerged from Egypt if not for the merit of the patriarchs. For God's attribute of strict judgment condemned them on account of the golden calf that they were destined to make. So, it's saying here just that even though we have repentance, even a level of repentance— Still, at the end of the day, we were saved by the merit, not of ourselves, but of the patriarch. So what this is telling us is that that God operates his redemptive activity based on the merit of the righteous. So in the, with respect to the Messiah, our ultimate redemption, our ultimate atonement comes in his merit. This is why we end our prayers in Lapid Judaism with B'Shem Yeshua, which means in the name of or in the merit of Yeshua HaMashiach. We are, we are recognizing that we, even though we've made tshuva and even though we are seeking to follow the commandments of God with our whole heart, still our redemption comes because of the merit of the Messiah Yeshua. Now, with our men Rosh Hashanah, we finally come to the blood of the Torah. And this is all 
kind of a uh, end of the discussion, if you will, of what we've just been reading. And it says here, the Midrash now sees an allusion to a verse later in Exodus that an that an, that uh, enabled Israel to merit redemption. Okay, so now we've been talking about that Israel didn't have what it what it took to receive redemption. <clears throat> we depended upon God's grace, and God made His redemption for His namesake and for the sake of His of Abraham Avinu. But now it's saying, but there was something that actually enabled us to merit redemption. And that something is the blood that was put on the door. And now the Midrash is going to tell us what that blood actually was, spiritually speaking. So it says, it is regarding this Israel's merit that it states, you shall take a bundle of hyssop. Now, hyssop is used because it it represents humility, okay? Corresponding to the fact that the Israelites lowered themselves to repent like hyssop because we became humble. And dip it into the blood that is in the basin, corresponding to the fact that the Israelites would be redeemed in the merit of Torah that they were destined to accept. As it states in connection with the giving of the Torah, Moses took the blood. So it says in the footnotes, the Midrash is drawing a connection here to the blood mentioned in chapter 12 and verse 22, and the blood mentioned in this verse. In other words, the blood that Moses took at the giving of the Torah is likened to the blood that we put on the doorpost and on the lentil. So it says here, and he threw it upon the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant. And this is referring to the Torah. So in other words, what the Midrash is saying is the blood here is symbolic or synonymous with the Torah of Hashem. And it says, Behold the blood of the covenant that Hashem sealed with you concerning all these matters in chapter 24 and verse 8. And it is further written and touched the lintel corresponding to the fact that Israel would be redeemed in the merit of Abraham. For Abraham was the foremost of the proselytes. He was the foremost of the proselytes. And just as the lentil is high up, so too Abraham was foremost of the patriarchs. Now, what it's saying here is, it's remarkable, that the blood that was applied to the doorpost of our homes is essentially the Torah. It is symbolic of the Torah. It, it, it's, it's saying that the blood of the doorpost, which is the blood of the Lamb, and the Torah, are essentially the one and the same. In other words, when we have, when we put the blood on the doorpost and when Moses sprinkled the blood of the covenant upon the people, it was it's as if we were spreading on our doorpost the Torah or and or being sprinkled with the Torah. Blood and Torah are being juxtaposed together as if they were the same thing here in the Midrash Rabbah. And it says that Abraham was the foremost of the proselytes. I mean, he was not just the first con- proselyte as a convert. He wasn't just the first convert. He was foremost in them. In, and it says in the footnotes that the proselytes bring themselves near to God's service, and Abraham was the foremost among them. The Im- Israelites emulated him by coming near to God through their repentance and therefore were able to draw upon Abraham's merit in order to be redeemed. So in other words, by us accepting the Torah, which is the blood of the Torah, and putting that blood of the Torah on our doorposts and being sprinkled with it, in doing that, 
and being obedient to God's word, we drew near to God and becoming like Abraham gave us the merit to be redeemed. So therefore, when we accept Yeshua's atonement and we sprinkle that proverbial blood upon us from his atonement, then we are actually sprinkling upon ourselves the living Torah, Messiah, Yeshua. And in so doing, becoming obedient to the laws of Moses, we draw near to God like Abraham drew near to God and therefore become like him a convert to the truth of Torah and in so doing, worthy of the redemption. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. I look forward to joining, uh, being with you again here on the podcast program as we will be sharing some more insights from the Midrash Rabbah as they relate to Messiah Yeshua redemption and uh, just the truth of Lapid Judaism. Thank you so much again. Have a wonderful day. Rosh Chodesh Shavuot to all of you.